Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It is Saturday, May 26th. I'm your host, Harrison Cayley. And joining me today, as usual, are Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. And Corey Schink. Hello. Today, we are going to be talking about free will. Now, one of the reasons that we thought about this as a topic was that recently, you know, we're all fans of Jordan Peterson, and in his latest um, Patreon Q&A that he does on YouTube, the first question was a question about free will and what he thought about it. And um, I know I personally, when I saw it, I thought it was a kind of refreshing take to hear someone um, who hasn't really bought into the materialist kind of rejection of any sort of free will. And so he gets into a few interesting details about the the idea and the experience of free will. Um, so we're going to be talking about free will in general and uh, what and we'll play what Peterson says about it and then comment on that because I think we can take it in a even a few more directions than he goes with. Um, now, of course, when we're talking about free will, we have to wonder what we're really talking about. So we're going to be trying to discuss the various or some various um, conceptions of free will. We're not really going to get into all the, the boring, dry, you know, philosophy that you can read because a lot of it is just that. It's like, you know, it's like reading old, like, bureaucratic reports of really boring stuff. <laughs> but um, anyway, so we're just going to try to keep it, um, try to keep it at the level of um, everyday experience, um, you know, with just with a little bit of just enough analytical, um, you know, rigor to make it kind of make sense and to, to not just be talking, you know, plain common sense. But maybe to start out with before we play, um, play some of Peterson's response and reply to it, um, just any, you know, maybe some first impressions of what is free will and if you think you have it or not. What do you guys think? I think that's a, I mean, I think that's where I wanted to start out with when, when we first discussed this topic was to try and personalize it in terms of, um, do I have free will? You know, because when you, like you said, when you take this, this topic, it can be bureaucratic. And for the most part, it often seems like it's been bleached of anything interesting. So I, you know, I, looking back on my own life, I thought, well, do I have free will? And looking on the, the experiences that I know from my family, I thought, well, do they have free will? And thinking about the, what we know about nature and what we know about physics and, you know, how determined it seems like our lives are and the little bit of uh, wiggle room that we have in order to make decisions and in order to, you know, flex our freedom, it seems like that is the driving force behind a lot of what I do and a lot of what my family members and, you know, people that I know that what they do is to exercise that in some way, even if it is just an illusion, at least we think we have it, you know, we believe we have it and that's, you know, what we live for. Uh, it's all about choice and um, it's all about seeing choices uh, where they exist and where they don't exist. Um, I found this talk by Peterson, which, which isn't very long, but is pretty dense, uh, a great breakdown of um, the framework in which we make choices. And um, 
I think that there'll be a lot of uh, implications and and um, and practical uh, ways of thinking about this that uh, we'll get into here. Uh, it is an important topic. It's not something that we think of usually as such. Um, but uh, like you're saying, Harrison, uh, you know, this is um, this is something that we're going to bring to a, a very practical level, I think. Um, and uh, and hopefully there, there's some uh, utility to it in, in what we discussed today. I think at a very basic level, the, the most at its most practical, there is something important um, to be said about whether you believe you have free will or you don't. You know, if you do, that seems to open up possibilities for your future. If you don't, if you believe you don't have any free will, then you know what are you, then you're either not going to try, you're either just going to do what you know what you do with no real planning or um, future goals or aims, or you're going to be making those future goals and aims and acting as if you have free will while convincing yourself that you don't, in which case you might as well be schizophrenic because, or, you know, um, maybe not schizophrenic, multiple, multiple personality disorder because one part of you believes one thing and the other believes the other. And, you know, the two don't meet, the two don't make, uh, make any kind of contact with each other and you're just living a total contradiction. Yeah, I think that it, it's, it seems like we're at this stage, um, you know, just in just being human beings that we're at a stage where free will starts. Maybe there is the potential to, to, um, to, you know, wrestle with free will and to actually, you know, experience it and to use it as a, you know, in, and, you know, in reality, because determinism, you know, the idea that since everything in the physical universe has a cause and effect, and therefore everything, you know, the, you know, what the determinists believe is that, um, since we're a part of that universe, uh, we cannot act otherwise than what we do. That argument seems to me somewhat circular because it's saying that you basically you don't have free will because you can't have free will. But in you know, but that's that's the problem is that if you do have free will, if there is free will, then that doesn't necessarily um, that doesn't necessarily hold because there is a little bit of room for you to act otherwise than what the physical universe determines you to act. At least that's the, one of the inescapable um, like presumptions of life. Mm -hmm. No one acts as if they can never do otherwise. Mm -hmm. Everyone always acts as if they could do otherwise. There's always that, um, that possibility at the very basic level of consciousness. In fact, like a, as Peterson will, will hint at, it's, it may be basic to consciousness. But um, anyways, with um, let's get to the video. But before we do, just a couple, maybe get a couple things out of the way before we get in, because there are a few terms maybe we should look at just very briefly. So first of all, free will. What, you know, what does it mean to be free? Well, to be, uh, or, or what, what does it mean to be free as um as opposed to what does it mean to be like determined, to have everything causally determined? Well, um, of course, a totally free choice would be probably by definition not influenced by anything, not determined by anything else, but but whatever is the the free being, will it like you know whatever your consciousness is or whatever consciousness is free will not be influenced by anything. And maybe you know at the at the very beginning we can say that that's a pretty dumb idea um, because what being 
um, or, you know, what human, let's just keep it at the level of humans, what human is not limited by anything? Well, that's ridiculous. We've got bodies. We're, we're, we're in a world where there's gravity, where there's air. You know, we're, we're limited by so many factors just biologically. If you think about all the, all the um, levels of, um, you know, ke- chemicals or nutrients that, that foster life, and if you step out of, or, uh, if you step out of any of those bounds, then you die. That can be temperature, you know, or or oxygen content in the air you breathe. It's like you are limited by your environment to a great extent, um, just biologically. And of course, then there's all the the things going on inside your body that you're limited by, um, or that influence you. So you might be you might be hungry, and that might influence how you you know you might be hangry. Um, <laughs> And that might influence the decisions that you make and the way that you interact with others. And then you, and then just using an extreme example, it's like you go out into space without a um, a spacesuit on, and your free will is going to be, you know, not worth a damn because you're going to be dead. You're not going to be you're not going to be able to do anything with your body. So just very simply, probably the only like by net, by definition, the only being that could be truly free would be a being that is omnipotent. And omnipotence has traditionally been ascribed to the, you know, the the traditional conception of God, at least in the monotheistic religions. A being that is all-powerful, that has all the power, that can do anything and not be limited by anything. And we won't get into that today because that's uh, a subject for another another day, another show. Mm -hmm. But um, needless to say, I think... uh, I think that's a kind of a dumb idea. We'll be getting into into why in future weeks, but none of us are omnipotent, and none of us will be truly free. Now, where is freedom? We're going to be just you know we'll be getting into that to see you know what can we actually be free about in our lives? What aspect of who we are and what we do is free, and what is limited? And can we ex- can we expand our freedom? and limit our limitation or can we make use of our limitations if we know them and find the like the opportunities that those limitations provide so maybe the that might be a a good a good goal for today's show mm-hmm. is to figure out all those things for once and forever <laughs> and to be set for life well anyways here's the the first couple minutes of peterson's response on the topic of free will could you please discuss free will and Sam Harris's and others' ideas of its non-existence? Well, that's a good complicated question to kick things off. So I want to tell you a little bit about how to conceptualize free will, I think, first, because it's obvious that we don't have infinite free will. Our, our, choice, our choices are constrained in all sorts of ways. And I think part of the reason that there's a, a continual discussion about free will in the philosophical... <laughs> In the philosophical literature, is because just conceptualizing the issue properly is extraordinarily difficult. So I like to think about it, at least in part, the way that you think about a game. You know, if you're playing a game, obviously the game has rules. So if it's a chess game or a basketball game, then there are things that you can do and, and things that you can't do. And but and so it's it's a it's a it's a closed world in some sense, but the fact that there are things you can't do when you play a game also seem to open up a universe of possibilities for things that you can do. So chess obviously constrains you to a board 
and to a certain number of men and to a certain pattern of rules. But the strange thing is, is that when you put in those rules, because rules sound like limits, they sound always like things you can't do. But when you set up a constrained world like that and you lay out a system of rules, what you do is open up an infinity of, of a near infinity of possibilities. Same with music, you know, music has rules, obviously. And, and if you follow the rules, then you can make an infinite variety of music. And so, and so there's, a, there's a very interesting dynamic that's hard to understand between constraint and possibility. And there's a deep idea that's associated with that that I read in some Jewish commentary on, on the biblical stories that I, I read a long time ago, um, talking about the relationship between God and man. And the idea was that God, imagine a being with the classical attributes of God, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful. What does a being like that lack? And obviously the answer is nothing, right? Because by definition, those three traits provide for absence of limitation. But then that's exactly what's lacking, is limitation. And there's some strange connection between limitation and, and I was saying, say, limitation that, that's rule-governed, as I mentioned before, and the opening up of possibility. So... It isn't necessarily the case that now determine, determinism and limitation aren't exactly the same thing, but they're analogous and they need to be discussed together. Okay, so now, so that's the first thing is that our, whatever our free choice is, it isn't limited. It's or it's limited. It's it's deeply limited. Now, okay, that's the first point. Mm -hmm. Peterson's first point, and we basically, we, you know, we basically covered that right before he said it. Oh, it's almost as if we'd heard it before, <laughs> um, but no. Um, this is actually something I've seen discussed um, and read about and thought about for years on the topic of free will, um, this idea of limitation and where the limits are and what what freedom might actually be able to achieve within those limits. <clears throat> now, Peterson mentioned um, music and um, a game like chess as an example of that's kind of um, analogous to the situation we find in, in looking at freedom. <clears throat> and I think, I think the um, the overarching category of all those things is is to get into just information theory, um, without getting too in depth or you know technical about it. If we just use another form of information, which is language, it's the same thing, where we have a very constrained set of first of all sounds that we make. Um, with our vocal cords, and then another constrained set of words out of the, or combinations of those sounds. Because if you take, let's say, 30 sounds that the, you know, and, and, and you can have a, any, any number of sounds, um, let's just take 30 as a, a starting point. Of course, there's 30 possible sounds, or no, 30 actual sounds. We could probably have even more sounds. There are sounds that, for example, in English we don't use that are used in other cultures. So that's why um, that's why it's hard for English speakers to learn some other languages and vice versa, because not all sounds are used in all languages. But with the sounds that we do have, we can put we can take those, let's say, thirty sounds in different combinations, in different lengths of words. That gives us words, and then um, we can string those words together in sentences. Now, when you make words, of course, now if you imagine all the possible combinations of, of those 30, um, 30 sounds, you're going to get, well, it's a potentially infinite 
amount of combinations because you can have one syllable words, you know, 30, two, two syllable words, three syllable words, all the way up to, you know, if you wanted, you could have a, you know, 3,764 syllable word. It would be total, it would, you know, be totally inconvenient, but it's at least theoretically possible. So there are, so we have a very constrained set of words out of the total set of possible words. And then when you have sounds and words, then you can get sentences and there's an infinite number of sentences. You know, we can, we can never exhaust the, 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 the number of sentences that we can possibly create, but it's all with 30 words, right? So it's just like a game or with music where you have a, a set of limitations that opens up like near, near or actual infinite possibilities. So within those rules, there are still all kinds of things that you can do. And, um, and that seems to be how free will works. Like, well, um, Peterson will make this point a couple times is that what consciousness seems to be able to do or what it does at, a, at its most basic level is to see those possibilities, to encounter, to somehow perceive those possibilities and then to choose one and manifest that one possibility. And if you think about it, that's what you do whenever you're speaking if you're thinking about what you want to say, you have an idea of what you want to say. And then while you're saying it, there's, there's almost like a, um, an observer comparing how, what you are saying to what you want to say and say, oh, well, you know, that's, no, that's not what I was going for. No, I wanted to say another word or, or, or well, I wanted to go in that direction, but, but I'm going in this direction. Well, I'm going to have to somehow come back to what I wanted to say and, oh, what, you know, what was that I wanted to say? I can't remember. And then it comes back and you think about, oh, yeah, that's what, I'm gonna, that's what I wanted to say. So now I'm going to say it now. But first I have to say this. It's a very complex procedure just even speaking because you have to be, you have to remember what you've just said. Sometimes you have to remember um, just a few words before what you said, but also f several sentences back. And even in some conversations, what you said years ago, it's like, oh, well, you know, We've been having this conversation for years, and it's you know it started here, and I thought we got to this point, mm -hmm. but uh, but uh, maybe I've forgotten, maybe you've forgotten. So there's a whole a whole field of memory that comes into play, but also a whole field of projection into the future of what you want to say, how to how to get there, and then what specific choices, what what specific selections to make out of that set of possibilities that can get you there. So. And and like I said, that's just that's just one example of a very broad framework of of information, and you can you can apply that to anything, any process that goes on, to any human activity, um, and pretty much anything that goes on in the in the physical world. I think you could make the argument for that. In his book uh, Man and Symbols, uh, Carl Jung discusses that whole dynamic. Uh, between constraint and freedom, and adventure and security, as being the funda at its fundamental basis and initiation that that's what uh, human society and the rights of any of initiation all represent is that that just that ambivalence we feel between freedom and between that constraint and the necessity to learn all along the way you know how to how to face the future how to bring about the desired future that you have within this constrained system using all the tools that you have at your disposal and that in and of itself is you know in some way some sort of a, an initiation whether it's like a heroic initiation or it's just you know for 
for a lot of us, it's just you choose a job, and then once you get in there, you you know you chose this job or you chose uh, someone to marry, and then once you um, you know once it's all said and done, and it's you know if you just you go through uh, you you live with the consequences of your decision, and all along the way you're changed until there's another opening, another um, system that you're you know whether it's you know having a child or it's um, you know. Uh, getting a promotion or whatever, whatever you, the choices that you make all along that process will initiate you into this next level of information, this next level of, of, uh, of learning that you need to go through. And there's another component uh, that all this reminds me of, and, and that is um, we largely take for granted uh, all of the rules and, um, and, and things that uh, that affect our choices um, t- towards the future, uh, all of these things may be largely uh, unconscious. Um, and so, bringing into consciousness, bringing into awareness, uh, the uh, the parameters, uh, the 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 bed uh, from which we decide to go in certain directions, um, in effect helps us to move forward and, and, and make choices where we may not even see choices. Um, so uh, Peterson gets into that a little bit, uh, and maybe we can yeah, let's continue. Play, let's with play point number two. Here's another thing. If I take my arm and I go like this, see, I'll do that again. Now, you see there's a movement like that, and then my hand stopped just before my, my other hand. Now, it takes a certain amount of time for the neural messages to go from my brain to my arm and back. And the time it takes my hand to go like this and stop is actually shorter than the time it takes a message to get to my brain and back. So what that means is that when I, when I plan this movement, which is called a ballistic movement, it's called a ballistic movement because it's like a bullet. Once you let it go, it's gone. There's no calling it back. I've actually organized the neurological and muscular sequences that enable that action before it's implemented. I set all that up, and then it's released, and the whole thing cascades. And so once the action has been released, let's say, then I don't really have any free will because I can't stop it. Now, so so you think about that. It looks like there's a temporal gradient with regards to free will, is that as you look out into the future, may, perhaps the farther out you look into the future, um, the farther down the road, let's say, the more free your choices are, but the closer they get to implementation, the more they become deterministic, governed by standard causal processes, and there's some transition point where they change from being what we would describe as choice, that we haven't got to free choice yet, but at least to choice, there's some transition point between that and ballistic movement. Here's another way of thinking about it. I, and that's, uh, this is probably one of the most important points I think that Peterson makes, and that is that when we have a wider view uh, of our choice, uh, especially as it exists in time and looking towards the future, uh, where, we, where we have the ability uh, to act in the present uh, for the sake of, of future circumstances, for future conditions. Um, we're less uh, constrained by circumstances to make a choice right now 
uh, with less freedom. Um, so if, if you've ever imagined that, uh, and I think we do this all the time, we, we decide, you know, we're going to, we're going to take a part-time job and, and maybe take classes or, or do something a year from now. And because we have that distance, we're, we're able to act in the present for what we'd like to do in the future. Uh, we're afforded, we afford ourselves effectively more free will. Um, so that that's one way to apply, I think, part of the point that he's making here. Um, on the other hand, if you've ever felt under the gun uh, by circumstances in your life that that just sort of rush upon you, where you're um, you're subject to forced choices in the moment, um, it becomes a lot more difficult to navigate. Uh, be- partly mm-hmm. because you don't see all the options available to you. Right. If when you just get saddled with something that pops up out of nowhere, you know, Peterson would call that an encounter with chaos, mm-hmm. like with a dragon. It's it's like when you are put into that state of just shock, then you might only you might only see one or two possibilities. It's like, okay, well, I've only got I can only do this or this, even if you think about it for a minute. But if you were in a calmer state of mind and you were thinking about that scenario, maybe if you were visualizing it and and walking through it and say, okay, well, what, what are my options really? And then with more knowledge uh, or with more awareness of the situation, you could probably think of, well, you could theoretically think of an infinite number of possible choices in that, um, in that scenario, whatever it is. Some might be more similar to others than others, mm-hmm. but, but there's a range of possibility that you, that you don't see in that kind of split second, because in that split second, you are, you're, you're kind of, pushed into automatic mode where you're just running on um, habitual learned or um, or just instinctive um, processes, right? It's just like, okay, you're just going into, de- into default mode for now because you don't have the, the mental um, capacities at the moment to deal with it. So we're just going to shut off the brain for a second and just put you in like fight or flight mode. And so, okay, run. It's like, and then... And then your body just takes over and you run and you have, you, you yourself have very little um, control over that. You may have some degree of control over it, um, but you know, less control than you have about planning, let's say something, planning a course of action over the next year. It's like, you've got a lot of freedom to plan that course of action. Now where the limitation comes is, is the, the influences you encounter either within or from without, that then um, force you to, to modify or change that plan as you go. Right. Right. Did you have anything else um, to finish your thought? That uh... Well, uh, just in way of a, a cinematic analogy. Uh, like that? Yeah, <laughs> just like that. I like um, that. So uh, this reminded me a lot of um, Neo uh, in Matrix uh, Reloaded, who by the end of the film is confronted with this... Uh, this choice um, that that he's given by the architect. Uh, we've all seen it, but I think it's one of the penultimate scenes in the in the story where he he's looking at all these screens of, of all the other neos who've had to make the same choice in, in the past, so called, uh, who've reacted emotionally to the reality that they've been presented with by the architect, because there have been all these previous neos. And uh, he makes a different choice, a very calm choice, 
that um, that he's able to um, that he's able to make because he's calm, and uh, and it's in service uh, to his own destiny and and the destiny of of everybody he cares about. So um, uh, it's a wonderful scene, but uh, yeah, let's uh, let's continue on unless you have any other points on that. No, I just, I thought that was interesting that when you bring up the idea of destiny, um, this, this higher goal that, you know, internal higher goal that, you know, the, that a person can have that they can mold, you know, to the best of their abilities, their own behavior towards, um, you know, I think that's fundamental to the idea of having free will because in terms of the reasons that we give for doing things, um, you know, a lot of it is instinctual and most, I mean, probably 95, 99% of it is automated by our evolutionary, you know, past behavior. Uh, in, in philosophy, uh, they refer to this as, there's an interesting term called the specs, which is, um, it's modeled on this experiment about a wasp. Um, scientists were, they watched this wasp, they, she went into a, her burrow, she carried food up to her burrow and then she was she would go into her burrow to check it out, make sure nobody no you know no other insects are in there. Then she'd come back out to get her food. But the scientists had mischief, uh, mischievously taken her food and moved it back away from the burrow. So then she would go up, get the food again, bring it back to the edge of the burrow, go back inside, check to make sure there's nothing there, and then come back to get her food. But they had moved it. And they repeated this process about 40 times and she had, you know, no inkling whatsoever. Of course, the poor wasp, she's just, she's just doing what she's programmed to do, you know, very rationally programmed by nature, all of these different complex, um, uh, behavioral repertoires that are necessary for survival, but that we have that, um, in our nature as well. We, a lot of us have a certain spectiousness, which we kind of, you know, which you can, it's it's malleable, but you know at the same time when we think of that wasp, we think, oh, you know, how how could that take place in my life? You know, on the level of you know civilization, you know, how many times has the food been moved, you know, away, and then we just keep going back and to to get it again? You know, how many times are we fooled, um, you know, morally speaking, or tricked, um, or lied to, and we believe it and we repeat the same behaviors over and over again? And we do have this specious quality, but for some, but I mean, for some of us, you know, you think there is an element within us that we go through periods of confusion. Like you said, Jordan Peterson says, we, we meet the chaos, we meet, you know, the, the unknown, and we are forced to kind of reevaluate on some deeper level, um, unconscious and, con but, you know, with a conscious guiding process to to figure out what our own goals are, what our own values are, what we will do in order to, you know, to make life better for ourselves and for others in order to make life tolerable. And, and through that process, you know, that disintegrative process, we come up with this higher, with higher goals that can, that, basically then seems like it's it's basically like the structure for our free will that's what's kind of the you know the backbone that's when we get that spine mm -hmm. and then and now you know rather than you know it's just like well you know i'm gonna go to mcdonald's or i could get an organic or eat organic food either way who cares you know we're all gonna die in the end now there's like a driving force now there's a reason okay truth or you know well-being 
um, yeah, that's that's what I that was what came to mind when I thought about destiny in terms of what you're saying. So, Corey, you uh, in that you you just mentioned an interesting term. You said disintegrative mm. process. Uh, do you want to just explain a little bit about what you meant there? Well, I think Harrison probably is, uh, would know a lot more about it than I would. It's just when things fall apart. See? <laughs> so a personal uh, chaos and falling apart from which to it's a, build from? It's a state of disequilibrium mm-hmm. where it feels, well, it can feel like the, you know, the, car, the rug's been pulled out from under your feet. Mm-hmm. It's like all of a sudden you, you are not in your safe place anymore. <laughs> um, things, do, things are not as as they should be, as mm-hmm. they have been, and, uh, you know, as, as you like them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just basically something has changed on the inside. Um, this wouldn't necessarily be apply as much to just, um, you know, like a physical encounter with something dangerous. This is more like a, an emotional breakdown or um, just a, an intense and new emotion that basically puts your, um, puts your inner... Um, inner self into some degree of turmoil that is not um, not a normal state of affairs. And of course, if it is a normal state of affairs to be in that kind of turmoil, turmoil that would be a, a kind of chronic disintegrative state. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. there's that. Should we continue on with Ziegler? Sure. Like we know, for example, that people who are expert at playing the piano look ahead of where they're playing. And and they're doing the same thing. They're watching the notes. They're seeing where they're going. but And then they're disinhibiting the automated structures that enable them to play what they've practiced so thoroughly. They're disinhibiting those structures. And then they go automatically. And then what happens if you make a mistake is that consciousness notes the error and then unpacks the motor sequences that have been practiced and then you repractice them and sequence them again until they become automatic and deterministic so there's choice in that you're reading ahead but there's no choice in that once you've read ahead and disinhibited the actions then they run ballistically and then you can think about the same thing that's happening when you're driving in a car you don't look right in front of you when you're driving a car because whatever is right in front of you if you're going 40 miles an hour or whatever you've already run over you look a quarter of a mile down the road and that gives you the opportunity to see what's coming and to set up a sequence of increasingly automated movements that culminate in whatever it is that you're doing while you're driving. And so there's a gradation from choice to determinism, a temporal gradation. And and I, I don't often see that addressed when people talk about free will. Now Sam's issue with free will is that if you get someone to do something like lift their finger and you and you scan their brains using a variety of techniques while they're doing that what you'll see is that there's an action potential that emer- and you ask them to voluntarily move their finger so they're doing it let's say by free choice there's an action potential that you can re- that you can read off the brain that occurs before the person either moves their finger or let's say decides to move their finger and that occurs quite a bit before the feeling of voluntarism or that voluntary act and so that's been read by Benjamin Libet who did the experiments um, as indication that even the feeling of voluntary choice is determined but I don't think that that's a very useful way of addressing the issue because the the issue of when you lift your finger in up again is 
it, it requires pre-programming to disinhibit. Like you know how to do this, right? You don't have to learn to do that. So you have a little automated circuit that does this sort of thing. All these finger movements and everything, you can see babies practicing them. And they develop automated circuitry that tends to be posterior left hemisphere in order to run those, those automated processes out. And what you're basically doing when you decide to do something that's a routine that you've already practiced or, or made out of subroutines that you've already practiced is disinhibiting them. And the, the degree to which you might regard that as free exactly is unclear, as are the temporal limitations. So I don't think that Libet's experiments demonstrate conclusively that there's no such thing as free will, even though there are action potentials that indicate that there is brain activity signaling even the onset of a voluntary choice, um, uh, voluntary choice early. Now, okay, yeah, let's talk about that for a bit because he's talking about the the experiment that all sorts of um, of the kind of celebrity atheists, the ce celebrity evangelical atheists, um, well, and others who just share their their worldview tend to bring up, and that's this experiment where you you know there's there's this little timer going on on the screen. And it like counts down like to a second, basically, and then the person has to, or the subject of the experiment has to decide to, to just move their finger or move their, you know, do a a, rick, a wrist flick, and to to pr give give a, a response precisely when they have felt the conscious feeling of having made that choice. And then when you when you look at a, a graph of their their brain activity, there's this spike that starts going up um, in brain activity like four hundred, two hundred to four hundred milliseconds, I think, before before they have the feeling of making the choice, and then they do the the wrist movement, and then right after the, the wrist movement, that that um, brain activity falls back down again, and that's also called a, a readiness potential. Now, so so Libet, um, or Libet, I don't know how to pronounce his name, he was the, the guy to do this experiment, and then he, in his writing on it, um, suggested that this meant that we didn't have free will because it showed that this brain activity um, was basically making the choice for us. We don't, our body, our brain had already made the, well, that's even to use language of choice, our brain was already going to do that by the time we thought that it was going to do it. That we were going to do it, um, so I guess it could be, it could have been predetermined, um, and it's just a you know a chain of cause and effect all the way back um, that had you know it, it, all of history was leading to that you know all the, the entire history of the universe billions of years was leading to that one moment um, where you flicked your wrist in an experiment for for Libet, um, completely determined you know so if there were if there were some some um, futurists billions of years ago on some other planet that could, uh, you know, divine the secrets of the future based on the knowledge of the present. They would have, they would have been able to tell what the the result of that scientific experiment was, because it was all determined. They just had to, you know, get out their their particle calculator to, okay, here's the state of all the part all the particles in the universe now. Now let's just, you know, turn it forward, like several billion years, and then, oh, it's 7:15 on September 7th, 1983. You know, Joe Schmo. Flicked his wrist, and or will flick his wrist because that's what the universe wanted him to do. Um, and, oh, where was I? <laughs> well, anyways, okay. So he, but but even he, even Libet, left open the possibility 
that that there was a window for a veto, a conscious veto of that um, that action. Well, and in future experiments, he showed that there that right. people that subjects did veto that electrical impulse. They didn't. Mm-hmm. They weren't forced to. Their brain, you know, or the universe didn't force them to tap their finger. You know, like yeah. some horrible slave master <laughs> that well, it is. Which is just, uh, it makes me have even less respect for the, the atheist types and the all the people that, that cited this as like the, you know, the this, the incontrovertible proof that we don't have free will. Because, well, these guys, it's just so idiotic. If you just look at the, first of all, Libet himself understood that it wasn't a sure thing. And also the... The way the experiment was set up, the the machine only recorded the data if they actually flicked their wrists. So the only data was of these people flicking their wrists with the with the the signal beforehand, and then everyone's just like, "Oh, look at that! It must mean that we we don't have free will." Well, okay, put on your scientific thinking cap for a second. Okay, if let's take all the cases in which we see that that um, readiness potential go up. Do all of the people, do all of the instances of that readiness potential inevitably lead to a wrist flick? That's the first question to ask. Mm-hmm. First, they didn't even do it in the experiment. And and like you said, Corey, when they finally did that experiment, they found, no, sometimes you'll see the readiness potential and the person won't move their wrist or their finger or whatever the, you know, whatever the specifics of the of the test. So, so the, the entire... Using this as an example for for why there's no free will, it was just a dumb idea to to begin with. Now that that of course doesn't mean there's free will. Um, you know, it doesn't prove the the opposite. It just it just shows that it's not proof against free will. And it was always it was it was always dumb proof or you know dumb evidence to use against free will in the in the first place. Yeah, and as Jordan Peterson says, it's it's I'm not sure. It's not certain that that's where you want to look for free will is in the deterministic universe. I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, obviously that's part of our brains, our bodies and everything. But when we think of our free will, we're typically talk, thinking about um, our mind, our what is our subjective volition, mm-hmm. not something random or something that happens outside of our free will <laughs> where you know that's you know obviously it is it's obvious without a doubt that we are conditioned by our environment and by um the billion other things that that go on but at the same time when we come home to our mind when we're our when we are inside our heads and we're able to think you know through um this amazing machine that we have called a brain and we're making decisions that are informed, we're gathering information and then we, and then we execute something and we face consequences. I'd think that's where we'd probably want to look for our free will, not, you know, like a, the toe tapping or, um, but, but Libet, he, he wrote that, um, uh, in kind of a follow-up uh, after the, his experiments, because he was a he was kind of a he was a pioneering uh, neuropsychologist on about consciousness and free will, and he wrote that um, he thought the role of conscious free will would be not to initiate a voluntary act, but rather to control whether the act takes place, and that still you know it's that is it's interesting it's an interesting view to take. But at the same time, I still want to say that when I'm thinking, when I'm planning on 
making when I'm trying to make a decision, I'm thinking about you know just in terms of um, whether or not I do something tomorrow. When I'm planning my day tomorrow, I'm going through all of the, all of the things that I think will be you know beneficial for everyone around me, for me, and I and you know and then I and I do them. Mm-hmm. I, do, I don't that's you know i and it's day after day that's how people live their lives yeah. i mean some people don't obviously there are people who don't use um their their will in you know in a in a positive sense you know people could be enslaved to addiction or ideology like you know like the ideology that there is no free will or the ideology of you know fanaticism of any kind you can be enslaved um in a certain number of ways but you know that's that's not proof that there isn't free will that's you know that's just proof that it's very very weak we're very very weak and messy creatures what was the last part of his definition again um the role of conscious free will would be then not to initiate a voluntary act but rather to control whether the act takes place okay so well, yeah, and you can see how this would relate to the readiness potential mm-hmm. because the action is going to happen and that's basically the veto power, right? You can say, okay, no, it's not going to happen. So I would just, you know, if Libet were around, I would ask him, okay, so so that that conclusion that you just came to, um, that conclusion was going to come regardless of anything that you thought about, right, or any of your own choices. It was just going to come out whether you wanted it or not. Oh, except you had the op- the option just to shut your mouth so that you didn't come to that conclusion. Right. right. It's like, it's, that's why it's so ridiculous to, to see anyone, you know, thinking that they talking about free will as if it doesn't exist because everything that they are doing and ev- everything, every thought that they have, every like glorious conclusion they come from is so obviously a product of using their own freedom of their mind, own volition, their yeah. own volition to, to come up with that in the first place, that it's just like, they just look like complete idiots and they don't even realize it. Um, it's actually pretty sad. But uh, I, I want to get into that a bit um, later, maybe after we finish the Peterson clips. But Elon, did you have anything to comment on that one? Uh, just the idea that, um, that these people, uh, I, I, you know, you have to wonder if, if these atheists, these people who are arguing for biological determinism, uh, are somehow structured differently in, in their thoughts or have a different relationship to reality. Uh, why argue for limitation in such a way? Uh, why, why take your, your faith out of consciousness when you're using consciousness to make certain uh decisions um so that was just a question that uh popped into my mind as as i was thinking about all this uh maybe maybe for these individuals who argue this way they're they do have a different relationship to free will and to and to reality and uh that's in their structure or or in their in their thinking uh and that's and that's how it presents so and and what is it about you know I mean this might be obvious to a lot of people but what is it about our society that that is such a uh, commonplace you know almost commonsensical you know point of view especially in academia and you know I mean the and in science but it, it I just remember reading a study on uh, the Science of the Times the other day about the this threshold effect with school shootings and how you know. There are, there are certain there's certain people have a threshold that they have to meet in order that, for them to commit some sort of an action, 
And when it, when they were talking about the school shootings, they were thinking like one person would have to see one, you know, somebody would have to see one person do a school shooting and then they would do it. Another person would have to see two people and then they would do it. Another person would have to see three people and, and then they would do it. And in terms of this whole atheistic, you know, kind of mindset, this that really kind of boils down to just gaslighting everybody else who thinks they have a mind. It's just, it's, it's interesting that we live at that point, I think, and that there are so many people who can publicly say they have no consciousness. I have no free will. I have no consciousness. And that it's, it's so uh, well, uh, it's so taken for granted. And that's what I think that's really why I love Jordan Peterson is because not for his, not necessarily for his politics or his political stances, though those are important, but for his his existential stances, for people who who have free will, <laughs> for people who like you know have values outside of of materialism, and he's he's very you know and he's very rigid or uh, rigorous and scientific about how he goes about it, but he makes no bones that he does you know he sees there's I mean his all of his work is about the you know these greater important and meaningful experiences that all of all of us share and you know that just gets shunted by um by the you know this sort of materialistic worldview well one more thing about um what he was talking about about the ballistic movement of the arm um and a way of kind of trying to understand what what the you know the people that look at that and um, and see like a deterministic thing going on, kind of just to get a, a kind of closer look at all that. Start out again, I'm going to go back to the, the language analogy. Like if you have, if you look at your arm, there are a limited range of range of motions that you can make with your arm, right? Um, there's a limited, um, a limited length that you can stretch your arm past which you can only stretch it by pulling your arm off and you can only you know, and you can do that in every direction, right? So you could you could create a diagram, like a 3D model of the, the possibility space of arm movements, right? So every possible location that your arm can operate in relation to the rest of your body and even to relation with, to your other body parts. So if you move one body part up, you know, then, uh, then it, your, the range of motion is blocked for that, you know, the, the portion of that space that is occupied now by your other hand. You've got, so you've got a limited range of motions with that arm. Now, those are the deterministic um, possibilities for movement with your arm. You won't be breaking the law of physics if your arm occupies one of those spaces. And, and um, at any given time, if you, if you measure a person and you find their arm in those different spaces, it won't be a miracle, right? It, that it will be there because of understandable physical laws, um, because of efficient causation as we understand it, you know, the action of matter on matter as we think of matter um you can you can create a chain of of movements that connects them all together and they all make sense now that makes perfect sense in a physical universe um that you know it's not breaking any laws but but what's and so when you have a ballistic movement that that's kind of stretching it into a time period right where you've got um potential um potential preset movements of that arm, like he was talking about the different things that babies do with their hands. It's like they're programming um, and learning these movements that are, let's say, automatic in the sense maybe that even that Libet is talking about, and that the, what, what's actually happening when you're, when you're not moving your hands is that you're, you're, you're inhibiting those movements 
and then you're basically turning off that inhibition and disinhibiting them and the, the, the motions come out. Now, but that still doesn't get into the question of, of the, the freedom to choose those movements. Because if you were to, if you were to choose any of those movements, it would look this, it would basically look the same if you're just writing down the physical equation. What, but what's, what's happening is that it's like something is, is going on in your brain where you, where some part of you is actually, vo yes, voluntarily choosing to initiate one of those sets of actions. Of course, they will be limited by the physical laws of the universe and, you know, just what is physically possible with your own body. But it's, it's impossible to escape the idea that, and, and the feeling that we have at least some degree of control, which of those choices to make. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine trying to argue against that when it's presupposed in every action that we take. Now, of course, we can do things subconsciously or unconsciously that we don't, that we're not even aware that we're doing, um, and that we that we might rationalize that we had a reason for. That doesn't mean that you know that just that doesn't mean that all of our actions are like that. That's um, and even then, it's like if if you're doing something subconsciously, well, what is causing you to do that? Is it is it just the the chain of the universe for all those billions of years and the, those physical laws? Or is some part of you actually choosing to do that? Mm -hmm. Is it a subconscious choice on some level, uh, an unconscious choice? Is one of your body parts choosing to do that? Mm -hmm. Now that gets into a whole other area of philosophy about the nature of of the, the nature of consciousness all the way um, all the way down, you know, in the entire universe. But just something to to think about um, for now. But um, now I think let's get to the next clip. Um, yeah, let's get to the next clip. Um, another thing that we might look at in relationship to that is, um, yeah, so we could look at it phenomenologically and we could also look at it in, in, in relationship to how people treat one another. So phenomenologically, it seems clear that we have free choice and it isn't obvious to me why we have consciousness if free choice isn't real. Because consciousness looks to me like a mechanism that deals with potential before it's transformed into actuality, let's say. And and I think consciousness is also the, the faculty, so to speak, or a manifestation of the faculty that enables us to pre-program deterministic actions. So again, let's think about someone playing the piano. They're practicing, you know, after you repeat and you repeat your, your finger movements if you're playing the piano, any complex motor skill is like that. You have to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And you're using consciousness to program it, to sequence the motor movements and to pay attention to them. That all seems voluntary and it involves the activation of a tremendous amount of your brain because if you're doing something new, a lot of your brain is activated. And then as you practice it, the amount of brain that's activated decreases. It shifts from right to left and then it shifts from frontal to posterior and a smaller and smaller area. So what's happening is that consciousness is creating little machines in the back of your head that do things in an automated manner. And the, 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 the consciousness looks like consciousness appears and feels, that would be the phenomenological end, as if it's doing that voluntarily. And it is associated with a different pattern of brain activity. And so, okay, so there's that. There's the phenomenological reality of 
voluntary choice and effort as well because conscious programming of that sort is also effortful it doesn't seem to run deterministically like a clock does and then finally there's also and I don't know what you think about this with regards to evidence but what constitutes evidence is not always that easy to determine even in, in the scientific domain so think about how we think about ourselves and other people and how we treat ourselves and other people you can imagine that you're like a clock running down, and that's like a deterministic model. But people aren't clocks. We're dissipative structures. A clock is something that runs downhill. But human beings, you can look up dissipative structure. I think that was an idea that was first formulated by the physicist Schrodinger. We, we're, 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 not, we're not clocks by any stretch of the imagination. And we take energy in and we disperse energy. And... And we, we're anti-entropic in, in, in a temporary sense. So that makes us, and, and, so, and life is as well. Schrodinger wrote about that in a book called What is Life? And we don't, what we seem to do, this is how it looks to me. We don't contend with the present and we're not driven by the past. Instead, what we see in front of us is a landscape of possibility. And in my wilder moments, I think that's associated with the physical idea of multiple universes, but that's in my wilder moments. It's just a speculation. And so what we see in front of us is a, an array of potential universes, and those are the universes that we could bring about as a consequence of our actions. And, it, and we make choices to the right or the left. There's a lot of mythological speculation about that sort of idea, too, in, in an ethical sense, because... We decide what sort of reality that we want to bring into being. And so we encounter potential like God did at the beginning of time when he made order out of chaos. Chaos is this chaotic potential. We confront chaotic potential with our consciousness and we cast that into reality. And that, now then you think, well, is that really the case? Well, that's hard to say because there are limits to our knowledge about consciousness and about reality. But if you treat yourself like you're a free moral agent with choice and that you can determine your, the course of your life, then you seem to get along better with yourself and to be less anxious and to be more productive. And if you treat other people like that, that they're free agents that are making voluntary choices about how reality is going to come into being, and you reward them when they do it properly and you punish them uh, or otherwise discipline them when they don't, when they do it badly, then... Your relationships with them seem to work. And then if we predicate our society on the presupposition that each individual human being is capable of doing just that, then we seem to have extremely functional societies. And so, and this is something that Sam Harris has been taken to task for many times, is if you dispense with the idea of free will, how is it you organize your relationship to yourself, your interactions with your family, and your relationships with the broader social community. It's a very complicated issue. So I believe strongly that we have free will, that we're responsible for our choices. Those choices are constrained in many, many ways. I think there's a gradient of free will from free out into the future to increasingly constrained as the present manifests itself to deterministic in the moment, when, when in the moment of action, we, we might think that we enter the realm of deterministic causality at the moment of action, something like that. That's how it looks to me. He, uh, Peterson says quite a lot here. And um, I, I, I've listened to this a few times now. 
there is so much to say uh, and to affirm um, if, if you've ever thought about it in these terms about uh, what Peterson has just said. Uh, I think what, what's most impressive to me, uh, there are a couple of things actually. Uh, one of them is uh, basically that the, that the correct thing to do is to treat yourself uh, in your attitude, in your thinking, in your approach to things, uh, as though you do have free will. Uh, to, you know, even if you don't believe it necessarily, that you have the choices, to, 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 take, the, uh, to take the approach that uh, there may be choices where you don't see any, and to treat other people uh, and to respect others um, with the possibility that they too have free will. Uh, so much of, of what we do, uh, how we think, uh, how we behave, how we treat others, uh, is largely subject to a kind of myopic thinking where, where we've limited the numbers of, of ways to a- approach life uh, and, and the attitudes that we take towards doing things. Um, at, at one point, he even mentions you know, theoretically, because he says he, he doesn't know this for sure, of course, but that there are, you know, multiple universes. And I love that he, that he threw that in there, even if that's not his specialty exactly. Uh, it's speculative, but the point he's making is, is that, uh, in our approach to living, um, to, to take on the idea that there are more possibilities, that there are more choices where we might not ordinarily see them uh, is a is a wonderful way to, to go forward. Um, so there's that. I'm sure there are a couple of other things, but uh, I wonder if, if you guys had any thoughts on that in particular. Well, one thought just came to me while, uh, while you were saying that, and that relates to something I said earlier. And maybe I was a bit too sarcastic and harsh when I was talking about the deterministic universe um, you know, and the people that think that everything's, you know, predetermined. I don't think there are very many people that are actually like that. And if there are, then I feel sorry for them. But there are also people that, that add one more dimension of, of what is possible in the universe. So in addition to physical determinism, there is chance. So in, the, in their world, and I feel sorry for them too, maybe not to the same extent as I feel sorry for the strict determinists, the only two options you have are to do exactly what you're determined, what, you have been determined to do, or yeah, that can be interpreted in multiple ways. But basically, you something has de- the physical structure has determined your your all of your actions for you, or it's just chance. So it's just a throw of the dice. So to use a simple example, it's like when you get up in the morning and you have the the choice between um, bacon and eggs, or bacon or eggs, or bacon and sausage and eggs, or or various different possibilities of those. Just to use the most mundane you know, example of no consequence really to, to anything, then it's just a matter of chance which you are going to to do and uh, and you have no input whatsoever for what you will actually eat. And again, that isn't how humans live or experience. Like no one, no one, ex- no one has that experience of being completely determined or uh, or just being at the whim of chance. Because so if we if we look at that let's let's say we break it down for and let's say we could theoretically look at all the influences acting upon this individual in this moment and how so all of their past experiences and the kind of habits and and conditioning that has 
that has um, a, contributed to their to their um, kind of intuitive wants or likes and dislikes, all the influences of them in the past few days that might determine that whether they've seen some advertisements or or uh, or whatever. And so you've got these three foods in front of you, and you you can assign probabilities to each of them. So let's say it's like it's like ten, twenty, and seventy percent. So oh, there's a seventy percent chance that that you're going to to do this. So if you imagine yourself in that situation, it's like you'll and the seventy percent is just to just to eat bacon. Okay, so so there's more a, a higher chance that you're going to just eat bacon. So does that mean that your that the choice was determined when you that when you eat bacon, or you know maybe maybe you end up eating the the bacon and eggs, and was that just chance? Was it just a flip of the the internal dice that that made you choose to to eat bacon and or or eat bacon and eggs? I think that's. Or are you just are you like a, like a lot of people? And if you knew about that, you'd be like, I'm not, I'm not eating it. I'm exactly. not hungry today. Exactly. I'm so, not hungry this morning. I'm fine. Because in that situation, all you have to do is picture yourself in that situation, think about it for a sec. Mm-hmm. Actually, be in that situation, and you're thinking about it. Okay, I've got these options. I know that I've got a 70% chance of doing this because I really like this, and and that's probably the choice that I'd make in most cases. Do I have to do that? To prove that I don't have to do that, yeah. guess what I'm going to do? Right, I, I cannot do that. And and in that in that in that momentary, well, not even momentary, in that period of time where you're thinking about it, in your consciousness, you are projecting a series of possible outcomes, and you're you're flitting back and be, back and forth between between them. And experientially, there's no determinism in that, right? It's not like oh, I, first I was determined. You know, to think about it, that one, and then inevitably I was going to think about the next one, and inevitably I was going to think about the next one, and then blah blah blah. It's like that. That doesn't account for for the actual experience of making a decision. But you've got these possibilities. You're you're evaluating them. You can say, okay, well, well, here are the pros for this one. It's like, oh, well, actually, well, I, well, I've just been be- eating bacon. Oh, but you know, but those sausages are actually pretty good too, and I might get some more fat content, and that might be healthier for me. So there's a there's a reason there, there's an, Oh, the, well, there's actually a reason that I could actually go for that one. That might even be better for me. What you're doing when you, when you're evaluating the pros and cons of something is that you're, you're projecting future possibilities, you're analyzing and evaluating them, but you're doing so with, um, with, uh, an aim, a value. So there's something that's going to weight your decision more towards one decision than there is to the other. And that will depend on the, on the, the aim and the value you have. Now, of course, those values and names will be influenced by all your past influences too, by your biology, by your body, how you're feeling in the moment. But in principle, there it is still possible to change to change your value, to adapt your value, and to then make to make a, a new choice based on that value. Mm-hmm. So you could say that those values, all of that, all of that that's going on there is is higher. It's it's spiritual, and it's pretty much the source of of our our free will. You know, and it can be greater or lesser. You know, day day in or day out, it could be better. You know, better one day and it is the other. But that's freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, I, when um, when looking for some information on that readiness potential thing, I was searching online, and I 
I found a website that I that I found at various times over the last years just by Googling various different things. I think it's called like the Information Philosopher or something. And he's got some really interesting things on there. And he made a point that I really liked in his, in, in his discussion on free will. He said, basically, when people are talking about free will, um, both sides of the debate, well, there are more than two, but also, most sides of the debate seem to to have a wrong understanding. They take either extreme um, of, of an understanding of what free will means. So you've got the, the completely what you'd call voluntarists or something, people who absolutely believe in total free will. And just on the surface, you know, from what we said at the beginning of the show, that doesn't make any sense because to have a completely free will, you'd need to be omnipotent and able to overcome the, the, the causal like laws of the universe. On the other hand, you've got the, the total determinists that are, that are um, you know, totally deny any freedom. But he says you have to break up free and will. He says that the free is the aspect of the mind to, to encounter and evaluate possibilities. Those are your courses of action. Those are the different paths you can take in life. And everyone knows what that means. Everyone knows that there's a better path and a worse path. You might be on a really bad path in your life. And if you don't make some changes, then you're going to fall apart and ruin, you know, ruin your life if it's not ruined already. But there are other paths. There are other choices that you can take to turn that around and to start in a different direction. That makes intuitive sense because that's the way the universe is structured and that's the purpose and, and uh, function of consciousness. But then <clears throat> that's the freedom aspect. The will is the determined aspect. So you freely have those possibilities, but when you will something, that is a determined action. First of all, it's determined by, by the, the, the choice of that freedom. So basically, if you think about freedom as this kind of like airy thing going on in your head. It's ephemeral. It's abstract. It's, it's mental in nature. But when you will something, you bring it into physical form. You bring it into your body. You manifest it. You embody it. And at that point, it's deterministic. And so that's what, what uh, Peterson's talking about when he talks about a temporal gradient to free mm-hmm. will, is that there, that there is this, this future um, free aspect and then in the moment of action, it collapses into uh, a physical determinism. And this actually led, this thinking in these sorts of terms is what led Whitehead to develop his, um, his notion of, of process philosophy. Um, and again, I'll, I'll probably be coming back to this countless times in future shows because I think Whitehead was um, the, guy to get, the guy to get the closest to an understanding, to a philosophical understanding of the way the way the universe works in, in, in such a way as to explain and account for all of the aspects of human experience. So I'll, like when, when I'm saying that we can't help but presuppose that we have some degree of freedom, it's like uh, the purpose of philosophy, according to Whitehead and according to his, um, his analysis of the history of philosophy and the history of science, is that the, the purpose of philosophy is to account for those presuppositions in such a way that they make sense, not to come up with some um, flighty, uh, some flight of fancy philosophy that denies that presupposition. Because when you den- deny the presupposition, you can't help but end up contradicting yourself. It's like being a, a, a solipsist, you know, engaging in solipsism. When, when if I were to, to believe that I were the only person and everyone else was a figment of my imagination, and but at the same time I'm talking to you two right now and to everyone listening, and in the act of talking to you and making my point to you and maybe getting angry if you say something I don't agree with and then engaging in a back and forth, 
I'm presupposing your existence, which, um, you know, and, and then for me to say, oh, well, I don't actually believe that you exist. Well, I can't say that with a straight face while actually talking to you. Um, but anyways, the, what, 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 to get back to the, to the temporal gradient of, of free will, what Whitehead said is that the only thing that makes sense, you know, and there may be developments of this idea in the future, but, but the, the only thing at the time and that I think still makes sense is that there's a dual aspect to, to any being, like a, like a human being with consciousness. And on the one end, you have a mental pole that does exactly what um, what Peterson says it does, <clears throat> and that is to to encounter possibilities, to encounter v- virtual futures, mm-hmm. to then choose one of those possibilities to manifest, and then in the act of manifestation, which which you can call self determination or or you know free uh, free will, you make that choice, you self determine, then you then you determine for yourself your your next physical state so that and which is influenced and limited by previous physical states so there's a a, a subjective um, consciousness angle that then you know in the in that moment of transition turns into a, a physical um, uh, a physical pole that then exerts phys- uh, physical like efficient causation on other things so basically i i encounter these possibilities and this this is a very short period of time. Like this is an instantaneous thing, right? And it can, it can apply to to things on like the molecular or subatomic level. But uh, but basically, it, so so choices can be like a string of 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 interlinking and overlapping choices where where what we consider maybe like one choice to to make that ballistic movement with our hand can be can be broken up into who knows how many thousands of of little individual choices that are all strung together to to make that physical movement, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and this 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 reconciles the notions of final and efficient causation. Efficient causation being the 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 action of matter on matter, which is how we think of the physical world and how physics analyzes and explains for for physical interactions. Um, Newton's laws, very basic. Well, from very basic to very complex physical interactions, but the but materialism has blocked off any type of final causation, and that would be the the aspect of self determination or purpose. You know, having a future goal that is then um, um, moved towards through some type of volition. Well, so what Whitehead did is account for, uh, well, basically account for how this might happen at, at a very rigorous philosophical level. Um, and that, funnily enough, or you know, coincidentally, Peterson has kind of locked on to the same, um, the same idea, at least in, in a general sense, which is very interesting. And so, just to bring it back to, to the practical level, Peterson brought up one uh, kind of at the macro practical level is that societies in which people tend to think this way seem to do well. They seem to be better in some way. They seem to go in a better direction in in a society where people do not think of themselves or others as as free beings that can lead to to atrocities like horrible things and even that right there there's there that's the practical the practical test for truth it's like well what works well when you look at what works you, you, you well so f- believing in free will works and when you look at the if you like set up an experiment and you were to do some kind of test and if those were the results that you were to get 
then the implication of that of that test, if you were to say, oh, f- you know, people that believe in free will tend to get along better in in important and significant ways, that is to imply that it could be otherwise, right? That people could have made other choices, could have could have had different beliefs that could have set them on a worse path, mm-hmm. and even that presupposes that that the 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 result of the experiment was was a was a result on some level of the the mass of choices that these people have taken so they could have made they could have done otherwise if they're in in a bad spot and that's what what brings it back to to peterson's main idea of a personal responsibility it's like when you're in a bad place it hurts but it would it would benefit you to look back at your own life and your own changes and say what could i have done otherwise oh you know looking back I realize I really could have done otherwise in that situation, right? Sure. I didn't have to make that choice. Mm-hmm. I made it for whatever reasons. I could have done otherwise. And now in the future, I can do otherwise. And that's what this, I think that's what life is. It's going through all these branches, real, you know, encountering the unknown with very limited information. Mm-hmm. And so they're, therefore being blind to all these possibilities that are open to us in any given in any given point of action and, and kind of just like flying blind, right? It's like, I'm just going to trust. I'm just going to, cause, cause I can't see what's going on here. I'm just going to trust for the moment that maybe like my body and the, you know, the evolutionary history of my species will just put point, point me in the right direction. And that seems to work to a large degree cause we're still around, but, um, but taking it to, like to the, to the next personal level, it's like you do that and then you actually learn something because you screw up. You realize, oh, okay, I understand that now. I see what I did. I, you know, I made this choice, but I didn't realize that I could do that. I didn't realize that these people were around. I didn't realize that I could talk to that person. I didn't realize that this person knew these things and I could learn from them. And I didn't, so I didn't realize I could make like choice D as opposed to choice A, B, and C. And in the future, you know, there's choice D, and it's this constant learning process where the more you know, the more you are able. It, it's like um. It's like the field of your vision looking into those future possibilities expands so you can see more possibilities. And when you and it's not just that you see all these possibilities and they're equally weighted. Some will have more weight than others, right? So you'll see one and you'll be attracted. It'll be like, that one is more attractive to me um, because, well, for whatever reason, right? Well, then, then, well, then the question is, what is the nature of that attraction? What is the nature of value? Um, and that's a, a whole other question. Well, that, that, that's... Uh... That's a good point uh, from which to to discuss some of this because, um, you know, how much do we value information? How much do we even value uh, the process of being conscious of information and and making choices in the moment uh, or further down the line based on the accumulation of of knowledge of certain things? And you know, I just think about the SOT page that we work on. I, I think about the, uh, the 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 multitude of pieces of information that we see there on a daily basis. Uh, do I want to live uh, in Hawaii right now, given what we know about the Ring of Fire and and uh, and the sun's activity and the Earth opening up? Do I want to put my money in uh, in the stock market when uh, when from what certain people are saying? Uh, there's a bubble. I mean, you get the idea. Um, are we, are we basing our choices on good information? Are we, are we consciously evaluating information that would affect our choices that would, uh, affect, um, 
how we exist in the future. Um, and I would just add uh, one more uh, thing on that. Um, just getting back to this uh, temporal uh, gradient that uh, you described, Harrison, and, and Peterson gets into a little bit. Um, reminded me quite a lot of uh, Boris Moraviev's um, writings in the Gnosis series, this uh, esoteric literature that he put out uh, some time ago, some decades back. Uh, he talked about um, our subjective experience of time, uh, but how uh, in the process of focusing um, on a certain thing, uh, that is exerting our will towards a, a, a certain problem or a certain issue or a certain choice, uh, we're, we're presented with all kinds of choices in, in ways that, um, that don't seem apparent. Uh, so he gives an analogy of a tennis player. And a tennis player has learned to uh, effectively slow down time um, so that he can see the tennis ball coming at him uh, effectively in slow motion. And because, he, because he's expanded his experience of time, uh, he's able to angle himself and position himself uh, and prepare himself in such a way as to uh, respond to that tennis ball and lob it back effectively uh, and, and keep the, the game going, keep himself in the game. Um, so he uses this analogy to explain how uh, our, our own consciousness, if, if we decide to exercise it, uh, can give us freedom within a moment. Um, and, and you can, you can expand on this. Um, it could give us freedom in a way that, uh, you know, look, looking towards the future and all kinds of choices. If we decide that we want to exert the will to focus on those choices based on the information that we've allowed to become a part of those choices. So, uh, um, it, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. It's something that, uh, I think, we live our, our day-to-day um, routines and, and there are certain numbers of, of things that we want to do. Like you mentioned earlier, Corey, you know, we, we, could, we could do it consciously or unconsciously. Um, but there seems to be a certain amount of, of will based on knowledge that is required uh, in order to engage this process of, of giving ourselves more freedom. Well, and I think, like, you know, just starting out, like Peterson was saying, we can we program ourselves to do certain things, and you know if somebody feels like they don't have enough free will. I mean, it's you, you know, if people just feel like they have no you know freedom whatsoever internally or whatever. It it starts with the littlest things. I mean, you know, you you program the littlest, tiniest activities, and those those start to have an effect in the system. You, the more that you're able to program yourself to do things that are for your own benefit and that are you know that are that are healthy and that will strengthen your, your will and your freedom, then um, the more that becomes automatic and that isn't necessarily in and of itself, you know, uh, deterministic, but that is our own, you know, it's, it's, it's using our own machinery for our purposes, you know, using the, the deterministic universe and programming it in a way that it's 
probably designed for you know you know how complex it is who knows what the heck was going in when they designed the uh, you know the <laughs> dna and the brain the frontal lobes dopamine serotonin i mean it's it's just unbelievable but like what you were saying alon made me think that of information as you know just such a, an important food and something that you can never get enough of. And we need to, like, every day, need to have just a, just gorge ourselves on as much information as our stomachs can handle. And in, at the same time, there's that, there's this threshold, uh, in terms of the, the cost of information. Um, it reminds me that a philosopher once said, and I was reading about it not too long ago, that basically the information isn't, isn't cheap and that we are more likely to rely on cheap heuristics and easy easy you know fast thinking in order in order to make decisions because it's so it's much more costly to exercise you know you know to search for information look for information try and digest it think about it figure out what it means relate it to ourselves and if but if that is really you know edit one of the most important pieces or you know organs in our free will then you know we then it's we need to stuff our faces with it and i think that's the one of the nice things about sod is that it, there's so much there there's it's just a smorgasbord but it's not pleasant <laughs> you know information is not always pleasant there are you know the it has cer certain tyrannical type features that you know it can break you down the truth hurts you know it, it'll set you free maybe and you know after a, a period of time but it's not easy it's mm -hmm. not cheap and it takes that's where the will part comes in i think you know you this is that's kind of just it's just will well well that's that's a great point actually that that uh, good information is expensive yeah and um, and and what does that mean exactly? I think it means mm -hmm. that uh, it means that if we have certain ideas that good information fly in the face of, um, you know, if we have our sacred cows, if we have our um, our rigidity and our our uh, our prejudices and our biases, um, that it requires a certain amount of work, sometimes difficult. Uh, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's challenging. It, you know, it, it's like, okay, so you're saying that uh, you're saying that the government uh, lost twenty four trillion dollars. It's mind boggling. You know, what do I have to what do I have to do to process that? Um, this is just to take one example uh, that that corruption exists on such a level. And mm -hmm. what does that mean for the world I live in? And what mm -hmm. does that mean about about my understanding of of uh, how things really work, mm -hmm. uh, or you're you're telling me that this politician or or this uh, that this person is really a pedophile? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know, I have to do a certain amount of processing. You know, this isn't something that I'm just I just sort of glide by. I'm not reading about Kim Kardashian's latest uh, you know party or 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 statement. Uh, this is something that that um, that well, I can either choose to ignore it, and and um, and maybe I've been conditioned to ignore it. Maybe that that's where uh, that's where the work comes in. There is so much conditioning. There's so much programming. There is so much um, that we're not even aware of that that it that it um, it. Um, 
it behooves us to become aware of mm-hmm. uh, that would help us to to process information that is difficult that that flies in the face of everything that we know uh so yes good information is expensive <laughs> i just thought that expensive. was yes uh and and maybe more to the point uh, assimilating good information mm-hmm. and and acting from uh good information to expand your your free will and your ability to choose for yourself and for others uh is is where the the pain comes in but also the the potential benefit yeah because that that just gets back to i guess right where we started or right where jordan peterson started when he was discussing about the constraints and the limitations in the universe and all the possibilities that that opens up for us is that you know that when you when you're listening to him speak and then you you you're thinking about our free will in this kind of constrained universe and you think about what Harrison was talking about about the the freedom from all the way down to how you know just like a proton might not have a choice as to how to act but science has discovered that you know bacteria they make you know complex decisions uh, constantly and it's all throughout you know I mean just some physicists maintain that all throughout the the physical universe there is a constant process of evolution that's occurring there is an agency of some kind that's involved in the in this information processing thing that we call the universe and when you think of it that way i mean it's we have these constraints but they are also they are in and of themselves our possibilities and like young said they those constraints are in and of themselves our initiations and how we meet those we we know you know the consequences of our actions whether we're meeting them rightly or wrongly and it's um it's just it's fascinating to me to 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 live in a time like this where you know there's all of this scientific information uh, but then to have such a rich philosophy and the you know to be able to just feast yourself on so many different you know tidbits about um about the universe like jordan peterson's presented well on the topic of limitations on free will and on the uh, What's the word I'm trying to think of? Con, con something. Constrictions? No. Whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> Limitations. Um, I want to read a quote from Kazimierz Dabrowski, the uh, psycho- Polish psychologist uh, who has his theory of positive disintegration. So in one of his books, I think it's in um, Personality Shaping Through Positive Disintegration, he has a, just a paragraph on free will that I want to read for uh for maybe a a short discussion before we end the show today um so this is what he writes in this in the psychophysiological structure of man the problem of free will arises only at the level of disintegrative introspective activities one can hardly speak of free will in almost automatic instinctive attitudes in man's cycle of development we may speak rather of the process of growing richer in freedom. The development of man proceeds from biological determination to psychological indeterminacy, the phase of developmental disintegration, and then to secondary moral determination, the secondary phase. We may therefore say that in the middle phase we have an unsteady will, and in both extreme phases free will experientially does not exist. So that's a 
an interesting way of saying it. So Dabrowski is basically saying that we don't have free will except for this brief trans, trans, uh, transitory period of development between um, like being totally influenced by our biology, our bi- biology, but also he doesn't mention it there, but uh, you know, based on everything else he wrote, I'm assuming also like society and uh, so um, biological and social conditioning and determination. And then what happens is when that structure breaks up, then it's like, then we're thrown into a period of indeterminacy. It's like, well, you know, I was, I was totally going in this direction and now I'm not sure. Right. And then, and then you get the period of um, being ambivalent and ambitendent, you know, having tendencies in different directions, but one isn't stronger than the other. It's just like, okay, well now I don't know what to do. Right. No option seems to be popping out, popping up at me it's like you know when i was describing about seeing the possibilities and some seem more attractive it's like in this state it's like then there's an element of chance right it's like because no option is stronger than the other um at a at an experiential level you know on the level of the feelings where one is weighted more than the other so it's just like okay well you know maybe today i'll be what people consider to be a good person but it won't really matter to me because i'm just you know it's just a roll of the dice and maybe tomorrow i'll i'll be a total jerk to whoever but there's no there's no value at that point in forming the like the 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 choices or, or the actions well the choices that lead to the actions that determine character um you could say that at the at a, at a low level most people when they are when they are um being limited or determined by their biology they're still acting out a certain value right because life itself has value and it expresses that value through survival Right, it it wants to survive. It doesn't want to die, and so it has lasted billions of years in order to survive. So, for for anyone that's just being a total selfish jerk, well, they're actually at least performing some service because they're still alive and they are helping keep the species alive. They might they may also destroy the entire planet along the way, but so far they haven't done it. Um, but then there's this period of indeterminacy, and then after that determinacy, indeterminacy then you have then then the value presents itself it's like you see that star in the sky you know like the peterson likes to talk about pinocchio right in geppetto and seeing that star and you know when you wish upon a star you are seeing that that ideal future you're seeing okay there it is that's what i'm shooting for that's the direction i'm going that's my aim that's where i want to be and that then that then influences your choices right so it's like when you when you look at actual people, like people who have characters of steel, right, who, who, who seem to always make the right choices. Of course, no one ever makes all the right choices. Everyone makes mistakes. But there are people who just seem like gems, right? They seem like a diamond. Like every, every choice they make seems to be the right one. They seem to be able to have this sixth sense, this ability to fish out the best possible choice in all their actions. and when you see um when you see that happen oh i just lost my i just lost my fish <laughs> my fish got away from me um okay so so when you see that happen what's happening is that okay this when you look at people like this in the real world and you're looking for actual example and you and you get statements from them about their experience of that what they tell you is i couldn't have done otherwise right it's like well why did you do this extremely selfless heroic act 
you know, why did you put yourself on the line in this battle? You know, why were you the first out to charge against the enemy? Or why did you, why did you risk um, being killed by trying to save this person who you didn't even know, you know, hiding them in your, in your basement when the, you know, the militias were looking for her. It's like, well, I couldn't have done otherwise. It's like at, at that level, the moral choice becomes the only choice to the point where you could not do otherwise without experiencing like a, a death on the inside, like a death of your soul. And so can you say that that's a free choice? Well, no, well, it, again, it depends on, on how we're looking at freedom, how we're looking at free will. It's like, well, it, it just makes that, that makes sense. Well, the way Dabrowski put it, um, he had a, a religious bent to him, just like Peterson. He said that at that secondary level, when your will you know, is determining your actions, even if the previous you would have just, you know, cowered in fear or being like, well, you know, I'm not doing that. That's a bit too, the stakes are a bit too high for me. You know, I'm just going to hope that someone else does it because, you know, I'm not that courageous. When, when the, when your will achieves that, when your personality, when your being achieves that level, the way he describes it is that your free will unifies with the will of God. Mm-hmm. So that there is, there is a will, there is a, an objectively better future. That means that there are objectively better ways of behaving. Now, when you put yourself in alignment with that direction, it's like, okay, that's what I've got to do. I know it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. I know I, might, I may lose my life. I know a, a lot of bad stuff can happen to me, but that is the right choice to do, to, to make, and to make that choice will make the world a better place. Um, <laughs> I just thought of Silicon Valley. That was very inappropriate. Um, will make the make the world a better place and so that I can do I can do nothing other than to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And it's like so in that sense my my action has been determined. But um maybe because Dabrowski's thinking about it in a certain way, I think we can reconcile all of these kind of together in the sense that is that what's the freedom um is there any freedom still in that process? Well the freedom again is the freedom of the mind to scan the pro- the possibility space. Right? To look at all the different options and say, no, that's the one. Sorry, all those other ones, not good enough. That's the one I'm going to take. Well, uh, just a quick comment there, and that is, you know, if if on some level, call it the higher self or the soul uh, or a spark of the Godhead, however you want to say it, um, if, if you've already made on some level, uh, in so much as it's possible, a commitment to aligning yourself to that higher value, to that higher being level of being. Um, even if it, even if you've, I think, made that decision at, at some prior time temporally, uh, the the issue of free will, um, in a superficial sense, uh, almost becomes moot because we we've we've made a decision to. Um, uh, a, a, the highest decision we could possibly uh, hope to uh, to make, and the highest goals we possibly hope to attain. I think that's that's a fantastic observation. You've, that at that point you have exercised your free will, like that. At that mm-hmm. point in your development, you have chosen. And that's very. I think that's a that's ex- that touches on what is it in our free will? What is it that we're choosing? Well, on that note, I think it is incumbent upon ourselves and all of our listeners to make that choice 
and to, <laughs> to tune in again. Tune in again next week for the truth perspective. Um, but you're free not to. Yeah. But, well, you're, well, are you really free not to? What would your conscience say? Yes. Um, Don't feel compelled. That's the question. So, yes. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Um, we will be back next week to have another fun discussion on something. Um, so thanks, Ilan. Thanks, Corey. Um, it's been fun. Any final words before we close for the day? Thanks for having me. Take care, everyone. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.